Radio TFS episode number 125. This is Greg Duncan. And this is Martin Woodward. Hey, Martin. Hey, good to be back. I haven't been on the show for a while. I was listening to them, though. It's good to, good to hear your voices. Good, good. Um, so what do you think about the shows? Did you yeah, like the no, one with Josh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sorry for not being there. And I, 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 I apologize to Josh. I hope he doesn't take it personally. You know, I should never turn up for his shows. But there we go. Never mind. <laughs> well, and that's funny. We're going to... Um, for the listeners out there, what we're actually going to try to do is set up a pool of regular guest hosts. So some of the people that we talk about all the time, Josh is one of them. We're going to have him on uh, so you know, every third or fourth show, and he'll be a host. And uh, uh, we're going to have Gordon Beaming on. And um, I haven't emailed her yet, but we want to get Angela because it's not a show if we don't talk about Angela Dugan. And so that way we can get some fresh voices along with the boring ones that you guys are all listening to, uh, me. Yeah. Because all of our regular hosts are kind of guest hosts, too. So we'll just build that bigger pool. Uh, today, I'm really excited. We have, I think, a record-setting interviewee. This, this individual, this will be his third time on TFS, uh, Radio TFS. Uh, so I think that's a record. Now, who are we talking about? Stephen Borg. Stephen Borg began his journey in strategic intelligence as a mathematician for the U.S. government. He later founded Northwest Cadence, one of our favorite uh, companies that we highlight people and post all the time from, a services firm in the business value of software and advanced analytics, a Microsoft application, lifecycle management, DevOps, ALM, most valuable professional, MVP. Stephen has spent nearly two decades helping organizations improve software design processes and systems. With his exuberant passion for the cloud and making analytics approachable, Stephen is a regular speaker at technical and business conferences around the world on cloud and software delivery practices. Stephen, welcome to welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Greg and Martin. I, I really appreciate it. Wow, that was a tongue twister of an intro I gave. Sorry about that. <laughs> Good to hear your voice again, Steve. Hans went for a long time. We're just saying, show 18 it was. It was the first time you were on the show back in March 2009. And that's crazy. I can't then, believe it. That's been a very, very long time. And then <laughs> last time was show 37 in 2012. So it's about every three or four years we have to have you on, Stephen. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. That's, uh, you mentioned Josh Garbrick I, uh, as, a, as a potential co-host. He is a funny guy. I, I really enjoy his sense of humor. He would be a great addition to Radio TFS. I, I think that's a great idea. But you never have me and him on the same show. What's that all about, eh? Conspiracy theory. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> Well, we've got a few news items that we're going to really power through. And uh, listeners, you guys know, just go to the show notes. We'll have the links to everything. Um, like I said, we're going to power through them because we've got a lot of great stuff to talk with uh, Stephen about. So first off, uh, what's new in the world there, Martin, for TFS? And, yeah, well, yeah, you uh, know, I, I, exactly. VSTS uh, um, has had code search for a while, and the code search uh, went uh, general available recently in VSO. Mm-hmm. Sorry, VSTS. I, I can't remember which name we've got this month. <laughs> so um, the the one of the neat features when searching over C sharp code is the um, semantic code search functionality. So you can basically say, "Hey, I'd like you know methods that." begin with this or um, you know find me the referrers of this code and that's really important when you're doing code search because code search isn't isn't like text search you know often um, you know when you, you 
when you're doing web search, you've got page rank. And so it determines importance by the number of links to a site determines its page rank. And then there's an algorithm down. And then mm-hmm. a very, very simple sort of text search like you do with Lucene or something like that or, or, or a basic elastic search. The, the highest rated entry is based on how many times that word appears. Well, that's totally the wrong thing to do when you're doing code search. For code search, if you type in foobar, (laughs) usually what you want is the class that defines foobar, not the place where foobar has been referenced the most, you know? So um, so semantic search is really, really important when doing code search. And they've had that for C-sharp some time, and it was using um, Rosalind to actually uh, parse the code and, and do some deep inspection of the code. And they've got the team have got it working for Java, which is really cool to see, um, which is obviously, you know, one of the... Um, one of the the highest sort of bits of code that are stored in a TFS repository apart from C sharp is Java. So um, so it's great that they've got that working, and that that really will improve the the accuracy and the functionality within Code Search. So that's great news. Awesome, I love that contextual search. You're right. I've done the searching through our uh, you know looking for a statement or a method or a parameter. Where is this thing used? And yeah, and a text. <laughs> text search or trying to do a regex or something is just uh, ugly. Yeah, and you can find, I mean, you can go crazy with it because the index is fully semantic based. So you can go all sorts of, you can do crazy stuff. But the, um, the main one is, the main functionality is when you're just trying to read through some code and follow it through. And quite often you use code search because, you know, the code you're trying to trace through probably doesn't even live in your project. You know, you're trying to find, you're trying to trace down a book and it probably lives right. in some code that's in somebody else's project, which you just happen to have pulled into your package room there and you get feed, you know? So, uh, yep, it's all good stuff. Right. And, and I, you like it. when you do that search, it shows if you do a, just a generic search, it'll show you the code types that, you know, foo is exists one time in a comment, one time in a definition, 12 times as a function method it references. So it all works and that works on the Java side as well as the C sharp, C, C++ and VB code. Yep. So a uh, friend of the show, Richard Fennell, has a couple new videos that he did at Tech Day's um, – UK mm-hmm. back in September and, and a really quick funny story on this is I of course subscribed to his blog and he talked about his latest video a whistle stop tour of Visual Studio team services and DevOps and he made a note in his blog post that to remember note to self uh, the snapshot that he used on the page he had his eyes closed <laughs> so he made note to self keep eyes open when selecting you know thumbnail image so being the Channel 9 Moonlighter, it's like I reached out to him and said, hey, Richard, I'm going to fix that for you or let's fix that. And, you know, I grabbed a new snapshot and updated that page. So it was just weird being both here on Radio TFS, Channel 9, uh, all these stuff that we're able to res- uh, fix that. And uh, Don't cross the streams. <laughs> So, you know, Java, a lot of Java in TFS sounds weird, but it, it's definitely there. That openness of uh, VSTS. Yeah, I mean, know. that's getting huge. Daniel Mexner did a great uh, blog post. It was great in a couple of ways. The first one, I liked it because I saw it in my Twitter feed and it had a copy of the Visual Studio Stadium slide from circa 2009 <laughs> when Steve and I first talked. So um, that was cool. But then he also goes through and kind of talks about, you know, valid customer scenarios where you have source stored in Bitbucket 
Um, the build defined using Cake, which gives you, you know, is a really easy way of doing cross-platform builds things. And I'm uh, a very active and, po- and popular member of the .NET Foundation, so I use, you know, talk to them a lot in my day job. Um, using Sonacube to do some code analysis, communicating out to HipChat, d- or generate an Android um, package, and then you know, deploying and um, doing dog fooding via Hockey App. And mm-hmm. like that, that whole universe, yep. Totally, VSTS can be at the center of that, all collecting data, do you know, uh, all providing value, helping you get that done, helping orchestrate that whole process, helping you collect the data so that you can then do some analytics later on and decide if you're going to be on time and all that sort of thing. So um, I'm trying to trying to feed this into the show. You know, it is seamless. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it, it's 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 just I don't know. I'm just really proud of how the team of you know it just goes to show you how unnecessary I am is <laughs> because because the team have really just taken it by the bullet and have, like got the memo that um vsts and tfs are, they're a, a collaboration service and collaboration isn't collaboration if someone's excluded from the conversation so you to, to be a true developer collaboration platform you have to collaborate everywhere and it's just great to see i i, I was doing a um a code signing service for the .NET Foundation recently with Oren Novotny, and we were mm-hmm. we were thinking, you know, we had the code out on GitHub. It's all public repos. We we're thinking, you know, what's the easiest way for us to set this up so it's continuously deployed whenever we, whenever I promote something to the production branch? I'm like, you know what, VSTS is is by far the easiest way, and you just do a quick build, have it do a deploy to Azure, and it's done. It's like, wow, that was easy. So, yep, it's good to see. It just amazes me seeing this and this openness. It's just so different from a decade ago. You know, it, it was the, the silo. There is no silo. It's a different animal and it's a different world. I'm just looking back at 2012 and 2009 when we did these shows. There was nothing like this. It's this openness and embracing of kind of the whole software development ecosystem. I love it. Yeah, well, when we did the first show, Steve, I was still, uh, that was before I, you know, Team Prize was purchased by Microsoft. I was still an MVP as a partner, you know, kind of on the outside doing the, just the Java plugin. And now they have several Java integrations. They have Xcode, they have um, Android and Xcode builds in the box in Visual Studio, you know, and it's just, it's just, yeah, it's good stuff. It is. It's hard for me to imagine that this is was on the MSDN blog site, and they talk about you know direct competitors, Atlassian, you know Android, you know, just to see this well, spelled yeah. out and see, give not really examples you know, because the, the, it's what the developers that are using Microsoft services are using. Therefore, it's you know. Well, it might compete with parts of the business. It's part, it's what your customer is using. So, you know, if, if that's what the customers want, then you have to make it work if you want to be a collaboration platform. So, yep, it's all good. Right. But the fact that you know, Microsoft is willing to make it work now, I, 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 we talk about this every show on how this is a new Microsoft and just they continue to walk the walk. So what's, well, just quickly, though, on that point. What's key? What I what I see and what's really good and in, in in inside sort of you know inside the bubble is it's not it's not so much you know oh, let's be open let's be friendly you know hippy dippy stuff. It's mm-hmm. purely focused on hey what do customers need to be successful? The customers need this to work with this. Okay, well let's make that let's make that work for them. You know what I mean? That's kind of the driving mentality of everything, which is, which is great. It's just it's all it's very very customer focused. So that's the important thing, I think. Well, you know, speaking of Northwest Cadence, we have an individual who we've talked about a lot. I've talked about his stuff, Colin Dombowski, 
and he's written a recent post, and he is a DevOpsologist. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing that all morning. Mm. DevOpsologist uh, for at Northwest Cadence and an ALM MVP. And he's done a great post. We've talked about some of his posts, and I've used his post, you know, in my day job to help me with my uh, uh, team build deployments, but. He's done little bits and pieces of these things. Just recently, he's rounded, rolled all those up into a complete one post, end-to-end walkthrough, deploying web applications using team build and release management. Uh, if you're doing any of those things, uh, this is going to be one of your reference posts. Yeah, I agree. And, and just a quick note, he updated, uh, or the next blog post covers the same thing, but for .NET Core web apps. Which nice. Good man. <laughs> oh, I did not. How did I miss that? When do you well, it came out? Yep, it, it came out today. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, because I need that too. Uh, okay, and the links to both of those will be in the show notes. Yep, the, the South African VSLM MVPs, you know, knock it out of the park again. It's good to see. Ah, but Stephen, you were telling me something about um, Colin. Oh yeah, the the whole title is DevOpsologist. He, he, he remember him applying for business cards or getting his business cards printed and and that was a little a little discussion with uh, the person who prints the business card is this title okay but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he came up with it and we loved it so devopsologist yes um so speaking of swedish as that sounded like uh, jakob n started a new swedish alm and devops group um so uh, we'll put a link to the in that in the show notes to their meetup link but if you want to learn more um and you're local then get together um Jakob and Matthias Alsen uh, do a, g- a great work over in Sweden. So um, if you can hang out, if you you know you can get around to get to their meetup, then I definitely encourage you to do that. It should be really good. And if you you know if you're in the area and you can even go along to to listen to some events, then that would also be very very good. At the bottom of that post, he's got an image that would be an looks like it's a sticker, and I want it. It's DevOps. Union of people, process, and products to enable continuous delivery of value to our end users, quoting Donovan Brown. I want that. I'll I'll chat with Donovan about that, see if it's it's already on Sticker Mule. If it's not, I'll make it so. Yeah. I I might actually have to put that one on my notebook. I don't do stickers, but that's... Yeah, there we go. Cool. And so that's in Stockholm as well. um, So if you're, you know, Sweden's a big place. So if you're in and around Stockholm, then that's the place to go. So we're talking about analytics here in the show. Uh, and we're talking about how open the platform is, and we're talking about other places in the field where what people are using, they should be using. Dave Meyer of Atlassian just recently blogged about uh, getting data visualization superpowers with Jira Content Pack for Microsoft Power BI. Nice. That's a big deal. That is a big issue, especially here on Radio TFS, because Jira is, you know, that goes head to head with uh, TFS for work item tracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, in a past, well, six months ago, we were using Jira here. And yeah, so <laughs> there's actually there's just some interesting as we moved to you, you, you always hate what you're on. So we, we moved to Jira. It's like, oh, we, we kind of hate this. This doesn't work. Then we moved to version one. We say, oh, version one is so much better. And then we say, oh, we hate that. And we look back on Jira. It's like, oh, we missed those features. And we look back on TFS. Oh, we missed those features. Grass is greener, I guess. Yeah, it, it always, it can be. But I've got to say, this is really interesting because 
I love Power BI. I think it's one of the most amazing technologies that Microsoft's released for just getting your getting your teams kind of seeing data and getting everyone to see the data. And hats off to Atlassian for building this content pack with Microsoft. Uh, mm-hmm. And <laughs> we've built we've built a content pack, uh, one on the marketplace for one of our customers, and it was it it was and is a challenge. It's not a it's not necessarily easy to get a content pack out that's that's publicly accessible and highly reliable so i'm i'm impressed but it gives you some pretty good insights into your software development practices in fact later was it possible to can we so if you had teams that were mixed between jira and tfs would would you be able to use this do you think to give you a an all a roll-up view Yes, you oh. would. And that's where I'm, I'm just grinning ear to ear because some of the stuff I've been working on is is that Team Foundation server or, or VSTS in particular, the yeah. analytic service, the data from that, you could merge with this data from JIRA. And I've taken a look at it and there are some places you could link these two together and get potentially burn downs, um, you know, like release burn downs across both teams, you know, integrating both of mm-hmm. them single dashboard into a single report potentially. So. Stuff. VSTS analytics service. Um, that's not NDA, right? That's not NDA. In fact, you can go out okay. on and look um, online. All of the documentation for it is out there. It is currently by invite only, um, so not a lot of folks are on it. Uh, but it's an it's an absolutely wonderful tool. I'd love to talk about it sometime here as well. Sounds like a perfect time. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. I don't know if you're done with done with uh, the links and whatnot, but I would love nah. to. Let's, yeah, let's, we've, got, we've, we've got one for say that one for the very very end hey greg yes that sounds <laughs> that sounds good so let me let me uh let me lay that out the uh analytic service um is something that allows reporting from vsts so if you're on tfs so greg you're really familiar with this you've got the analytics cube you know you can point to that cube and slice and dice information and and you know my my canonical example is it's in Two minutes or less, you can connect to it and show people the lines of code per developer per day, right? That that hideously bad metric. Um, <laughs> it, you know, always use your powers for good, not evil. But uh, you can go in and just grab that data and show it right away. Whereas when you're working in VSTS, you don't have that ease of reporting because you don't have the analytics cube available to you. And so what the VSTS analytics service does is it provides a an endpoint, basically a REST endpoint in OData format, where you can pull data about your software development efforts. It's frankly amazing. One why, the, is, what's making it amazing? Is it just because you can get access to that raw data and then Power BI is awesome? Or have they done it very well? Or why, why well, I think they've done it. They've done it very well. So there's okay. a couple things that you want to do. And I'm a metrics guy. So when we talk yeah, yeah. about uh, VSTS or TFS or any software development platform, I want to know what kind of metrics I can pull out of that. So they do give you the raw data, but they also have data feeds for things like uh, building cumulative flows. So every day, what is the state of a work item for every single day? Uh, that's a it can be a big pull because you know, if you've closed a work item on, you know, the March 2009, when we did our first show, it would still be showing up every single day as a closed work item. But that gives you, lets you build the cumulative flows. There's that particular service. But more importantly, I think, for metrics is lead time. And they can give you lead time between your Kanban board state, between every single state you get 
this wonderful lead time, cycle time metric that says on average, and here's the deviation, here's how long it takes to get this work item from open to closed or this work item from um, test to pre-prod or whatever you're. Whatever oh, you're- I really want that. So not and and just for so we have so I'm in the day job quite one of the things I'm tracking quite a lot is how long it takes us to respond to a pull request in a meaningful way or you know on GitHub and merge an issue and you know and things like that so that sort of thing is incredibly useful in a software development process. Oh, amen! Because that is one of the things which potentially will trigger the engagement you get when you are in an open source community. How if you I've I've done this several times with. Uh, submitting pull requests to Microsoft's uh, documentation, their mm-hmm. Azure documentation. And some teams, bang, they grab the pull request and bring it right in. I mean, it's just, it's it, minutes to hours. And those are the teams I get really excited about because I've made a contribution that's now showing up on the MSDN site. At other teams, I've made a submission and I've been waiting, well, I guess it's been nine months for them to review it. <laughs> it was just spelling the the with T-H-E instead of T-E-H. So mm. pretty easy pull <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we, people. yeah, we notice a. I mean, I mean, it makes obvious sense, but there is a direct correlation between the mean response time to a pull request and then to the engagement and seeing it go up. And it makes sense because, um, you know, when you send a pull request off or when you send a bug report into your, you know, to somebody's project in TFS as well, you kind of, you send it off and you, you, you sweat about that bug. You know, you've like put work and effort into that and you kind of, you know, hover over it, hoping for, for magic to happen. And then if, if nothing does, you kind of wander off. And then when, when somebody eventually does come around and review it, you have to context switch again. You have to pay all that context switch in tax to go back into and then respond to their question about the book and you know sometimes you're well i can't remember how 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 to do this i can't remember how to reproduce that but if they came back to you straight away with oh can you explain this part to me then you you know your brain's in that context you can easily get them the data and so yeah it's very very important to have responsiveness to these sorts of things that's one of the best definitions of lean software development i've heard right there (laughs) just one of the benefits get things done quickly once you start them get them done and that yeah. for all those reasons you just mentioned. Very, very cool. So, and then, so all this reporting that comes in, once you get the, once you get the data in there, so how easy is it to use Power BI to actually get the reports out you want? Is it, you know, I, I still haven't had my Power BI epiphany in, in terms of being able to create the reports I need. Um, so how, what's the learning curve like there and, and any tips? Well, there's a, well, Power BI, wonderful tool. You can get 80% of where you want to go with almost no effort. Uh, It's that last 20% that takes 90% of your time. But there's amazing things you can do in Power BI. Now, because they've done such a good job in the analytics service, when you grab the data and tie it to Power BI, you basically just select what you want. You can start building out things like burn down charts, things like um, cumulative flow diagrams, all of those basic sorts of things relatively easily. Um, The difficulty, or I I guess it's not difficulty, is that in Power BI, it's really easy to do those things, but you already have those in VSTS and you already have those in TFS. Mm -hmm. So where I see Power BI being more useful is taking that data and and presenting different types of data that are potentially more meaningful for the executives at a firm or or the senior leadership. Um, a lot of times I get to work in organizations that are doing kind of that agile transformation. And as they make that agile transformation at the enterprise level, 
there's always some nervousness, and the nervousness goes in waves. That that first engagement, people want to know, are we doing things appropriately? And and executives will kind of give you a year without too much you know, intrusion. But at that year mark, they want to start seeing, what have you done for me lately? Um, what is this agile thing buying me? And I find that that's the best time to start throwing things into Power BI using the analytics service, because we can expose some metrics to the executive team to say, here's what you're getting for this agile transformation. Here's what you're getting by your move to potentially VSTS and TFS. So the reporting, though, is only as good as the data that's in it. Have you ever had to like uh, you know, fix the data. <laughs> oh, Greg, that is, you know, that is, uh, <laughs> that is wonderful question. Yes, we do have to fix the data and I'm air quoting fix here, right? Um, <laughs> for those of you who've been in TFS or VSTS for a while, you know, um, TFS doesn't like to lie. It is very hard to fake data in VSTS and TFS. Right. once you've entered the data, it's, it's in there. Right. You can't just go and, and fake it out. But there are times when faking the data, well, let's say massaging the data might be appropriate. And, and let me give you a couple of those examples. But first, I want to start with when it's not. Um, think of the burn down chart inside of a scrum team. And you're looking at the burn down over time and it burns down nicely. But you might see a bump up in the middle of a sprint when someone discovers some big new thing that they needed to do. I'm going to add a bunch of tasks and add some hours. And, you know, you get that bump up and then that burn down towards the end. There was that discovery and you want to see that yep. inside of a sprint. But let's say you're doing agile development. Here's where you might want to massage the data and burn downs at the enterprise level aren't interesting at the team level and at the sprint level. They've got a bigger fish to fry. They might have an agile release train if they're using the scaled agile framework. They might have a bunch of other things, but they've got maybe something that's a bucket of scope. Let's call it a release or an epic, but let's start with just release. And they want to know a burn down on that release. But let's say that release is a, is a release and safe and it's not going to come out for three months. How, how do you measure progress? Because here's where you might have to lie. If we have a bucket of scope that's going into that release, call it 100 user stories, you're not going to size all 100 user stories before that three-month period begins. That right. wouldn't be very Scrum-like, would it? Yeah. Yeah, so what you have to do is as you're moving forward, you start to size these things later on in the sprint cycle. But now let's say you've got unmassaged data and you want to look at that overall release. What happens is you get kind of a sawtooth looking thing as people estimate um, the first 10 user stories and then burn them down. And then they estimate the ne next 10 user stories and then they burn them down. Well, just because user story 99 was sitting at no story points because someone had never estimated it um, at the beginning of the of the release right. doesn't mean that it that it is actually a zero story point story, right? It might actually be a five or 13. So you have to take where you're at and throw back um, your, your estimates towards the beginning. So if you're later on in the development cycle, say you're midway through a month and a half in, and that's when you estimate some of your user stories, you need to throw that back and pretend like that estimate occurred at the beginning so that it can change that into a burn down. So you can actually see the progress being made. Now you're lying, potentially, 
But really, you're just massaging that data so that you can message, a very similar word, your agile progress to the... It's not a lie. Boy. It's not, you know, until you've until you've measured something, it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It's kind of you know Heisenberg yeah. uncertainty principalism of estimates, I guess, or something like that. But um, yeah, no, it's yeah, that it's not a lie at all. It's that's what it was. It just had the wrong value, and up until that point, right. And you don't want to have your scrum teams estimating things three months in advance. That's right. That's not a good practice because you're that's waterfall. Yeah, that's yeah. waterfall. And and. And you don't want your scaled agile framework just to be a, imposing a three month waterfall on your process. So that's that's one of the things that you can do in Power BI um, is manipulate that data so that you get some really nice um, burndowns that have meaning for for what you're trying to accomplish. In the DevOps world, one of the things that we do quite a bit inside Microsoft is combine uh, analytics about our business processes, that you know, day-to-day development with business metrics, because that's kind of the whole point. You know, you you want to combine your, your we're supposed to be all one team building one application and having it shipping frequently. So you know, we have like the A/B testing results in the same dashboard as our burn down, as in the same dashboard as how responsive we're being to pull requests from a different, you know, completely different area. Because um, that's kind of kind of key, and trying to get some. One of the things we try and encourage our businesses to do, and I try and always encourage customers to do when I talk to them, <clears throat> is think about the metrics of success for the business up front as you're building this feature and then build the analytics in with your feature. You know, so you can, am I getting ROI on this or not as you're, as you're building it? That sort of thing. Absolutely. And, and people often don't think of the business metrics up front, but that's one of the most important things in software dev is measure the value the team's delivering, not the effort they're putting into it. And we tend to measure effort because it's so easy, but it's value coming out that counts. It's easy to give a, uh, S- yeah, to, it's easy to give a fake value to the effort. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I spent 40 hours this week working on that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I've got, yeah, no, that's why I like, that's one of the, the genius things about Scrum, you know, and, and, and a lot of agile methodologies is tell me how much time there is left, not, not, not how much time you've spent on it. I don't care how much time you spent on it. That's that's just a vanity metric. I want to know how much time is left now. Well, that's a, and that's a really interesting thing. And and one of the because you're bringing up some of these metrics, and I want to jump into those. Mm. You're looking at how much time is remaining, etc. And and even that might be a vanity metric because it's yep. valuable to the team itself, maybe, but it's not valuable to the enterprise as a whole. Um, yeah. I've gotten to analyze data. I, I'm a math geek, as you. you mm-hmm. As you mentioned at the at the intro, but I've gotten to analyze all sorts of data. And one of the most interesting correlations that I've found is that the size, that story point sizing that people give things is only very loosely correlated to its cycle time. That means when mm. you start something big, it takes no it takes no longer to get through your development pipeline than when you start something small. And I find that to be extraordinarily intriguing so you you can't say it's going to take much longer just because it's a bigger thing that you're working on at the user story level there's not a strong correlation between that and that's an interesting thing to pull out now is that because the dev test loop is so long a factor in that or that the the way that we do deployments is so long or what why is that do you think there's a couple different reasons Uh, uh, 
So dev test is one of them, right? Because sometimes testers wait until there's a bucket of stuff done before they start working. And that would, of course, tend to equalize those cycle times. Um, same with releases. It would tend to equalize those cycle times if we were having large backlogs before we did a release. But mm -hmm. even in high-functioning Kanban teams, you see it. Um, you see it less. There's, there's tighter correlation between the two. But even in high-functioning Kanban teams, you see it. And why you see it is an interesting behavior of high-functioning Kanban teams. Uh, they know their SLA. They know how long uh, they usually deliver items. And if you start, to, if you put a big item into a Kanban team's board, it's going to constipate that flow through the system. And Kanban teams will tend to swarm it. They'll get two or three people on it and push that through so it doesn't keep constipating their board. And so mm. what you find is they'll then leave some of these smaller ones that they may have started in the flow while they focus on the big one and then get back and push the other one through. And that's so even in high functioning Kanban teams, you see that correlation, which is bizarre for me. Mm -hmm. So but what metrics should it, what, what magic should you care about in terms of um, especially when you're reporting up to, you know, up to the management, up to the people that pay the bills? What, what sort of thing is important to them? Because we don't want to well, we don't want to tell them like burn down charts of individual teams and stuff like that, do we? Or what do we want? What do we care about? No, you don't care about burn down teams from individual teams. Um, you might care about organizational burn down, uh, potentially. Uh, what are you getting bang for your buck? Um, but I even burn downs, I kind of tend to set to the side a little bit. Um, I like the cumulative flow diagram, the CFD. It's the one that appears in the upper right that showed you for the last six months in VSTS. You know, if you're looking at your work, what you've done for me lately for the team. How have you delivered in the last six months um, your user stories into production or at least into done? Um, and that, I think, is the most useful one that we have. And why it's the most useful is because it, it gives us a way to predict how much we're going to deliver. So what the executives care about, um, they really don't care about how many story points you deliver. Um, and I want to disabuse people of that notion. Don't mm -hmm. show a story point burn down to anybody in an executive. Don't ever have story points anywhere near an executive because they look at story points. And they're like, what is that? And now you've got the next two hours of your meeting are all discussing why different teams have different story points, have different X and different Ys, and why some measure it in Fibonacci and some have do different dog breeds. And it just will never. So don't go, don't go down that route. Instead, you just measure the count of work items. And what I care about is the throughput. How many work items am I going to get in a month? And I care about the... Uh, cycle time, once I start a work item, how long is it going to take me to deliver that particular work item? Those two metrics, I think, are the most important metrics we can have. Hmm. What do you think about bug counts? I'm gonna, the reason I'm asking is because the ALM team used to, when I was around anyway, have this notion of bug jail, where if you had too many bugs, then you would declare you're in bug jail, and you would go and do a sprint where you just basically burn down technical debt. Um, rather than delivered any feet, you know, deliver any quotes features. So, what do you think about that sort of thing? I'm, I'm, that is I'm a brilliant not, question. I'll say that. Let, no, no, it's really good because let's say you're let if you're looking at that cumulative flow, which is you know, it's going to show you your throughput. Um, if your throughput is really 
predictable, but 90% of the work you're doing is bug fix. Um, in lean, that's called failure demand. It's not customer demand. It's demand self-imposed because you did it wrong the first time. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to count that failure demand in how much you can deliver. So even though in Scrum, bugs often or generally fall into the backlog, you want to filter those out when you're looking at your throughput or your velocity. And if you do get in bug jail, you're going to have to uh, you know, your your delivery to the organization is going to flatline for a while potentially because mm-hmm. you're not delivering any end user value. You're just making you're just making all that stuff which you'd said you delivered earlier. You're making that actually work now. You know, right? Yeah, and and you will make your end users happy when, when mm-hmm. they don't have to do the workarounds any longer, right? So 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 you could say you know you could say well they're they're happier. They do want to see bug fixes, but you're right. It's not any new functionality that has value. It's here's the interesting things. You know, I often hear teams say agile makes it unpredictable. We don't know how much we're going to do. When we were waterfall, you we could tell you exactly what we were going to get in six months time. And that was everyone knew it was a lie. Even the people who put together <laughs> the plan knew it was a lie. But wonderfully, if you look at almost any scrum team's delivery rates over a six month period, they're going to have a throughput. And this is just count of user stories. Ignore effort. Just count of user stories on that cumulative flow. And it's going to look amazingly, uh, amazingly consistent. It's going to have this upward climb that basically draws almost a straight line. And if you give me that, and let's say you've delivered 600 story or 600 stories, user stories in the last six months. Here's the wonderful thing. When you go in front of an executive board and they say, well, how much can you deliver? You can pop up the cumulative flow explain it in two minutes and they'll get it. They'll understand that they got 600 items in the last in the last six months. This lets your agile teams be agile. You simply open up your backlog, you drag down to the 600th item on your backlog and you can say everything above this line, you're going to get when you fund me for the next six months, assuming you don't change the backlog. But the beauty of it is, if you decide to put something else up in there, we'll deliver you that instead. But whatever you ask for, we're going to give you 600 of those things in the next six months. And you can almost put money on that on that prediction for, for agile teams that have been doing it for just six months. I want to come back to bugs, because when we look at bugs for a moment, there's some interesting things we can do. Um, given the bug reports that people file, we can actually use some machine learning tools. And I, and I just, I'll talk that just a moment, but we can use some machine learning tools and some statistics to predict how many undiscovered bugs we're pushing to production. And that I think is kind of a new well, hello. way. How do you do that? Way. I want to know more. This is interesting because we've, we've tried to do machine learning in a couple of different ways. We've tried to do sentiment tracking over issues mm-hmm. and comments to issues and find that, found that not to be too valuable turns out people are angry when they're responding to bugs and and turns out um you know that people who aren't angry get bugs fixed quicker which is interesting i guess but the um but apart from that we haven't had much yeah go on how are you using machine learning with bugs <laughs> very interestingly you can look at the way your if you have a, a test team that is that is finding bugs prior to release and, and annotating those bugs, um, you can use the the way they're finding bugs. Kind of the, they they don't find them linearly. You know they they find them in bursts um, as you're moving through, and you can analyze that data to predict um, how many bugs are found post release. As long as you have some post-release bugs, bug reports as well. So you kind of train it on the pattern that the, that the test team 
finds the bugs, and prior releases where the bugs were found off into production. And you can get some rough correlations that way. Um, if you have two test teams that are working relatively independently, you can use an, another technique that I find is really interesting to predict the number of bugs that are released to production. But the best way to do that is through an analogy. Um, um, if you're fish in game and you're trying to count how many fish are in a lake, um, there's a couple ways to do it, right? You can drive around the lake and, lake and throw sticks of dynamite in the lake and kill all of the fish. They float to the top and you count all the fish, right? You can say, well, there were 100,000 fish in the lake. Um, that's not how fish and game does it, however. Instead, they catch a 1,000 fish, tag those 1,000 fish, throw them back in, and then let them redistribute in the lake over the period of the next couple weeks. And then they catch another 1,000 fish. And if and then the number of tags that are on those next thousand caught, um, let's say it was a thousand tags caught. Well, you probably there's only a thousand fish in there. Uh, but if you caught a hundred tags out of that, there'd be somewhere around 10,000 fish in the lake because you caught of the of the thousand you released, 10 percent of those had tags when you caught the next thousand. So therefore, there are probably 10,000 in release. And so if you have independent test teams, you can get some some uh, some data that way. Now, because most places don't have independent test teams, there are machine learning algorithms you can use to help simulate having dual test teams. And that's when I'm talking about the pattern of bug discovery. That's what we're feeding in to get those um, bugs released to production metric. Now I'm interested. And you'd have to feed in churn into that as well and things like that, wouldn't you? You'd have to feed in how much the system was touched because between releases, or you could assume an equal amount of the system was touched between releases, I guess. Uh, ah, you, you make some assumptions, but the more data you feed it, the more accurate you can be. By the way, churn close to a release is highly correlated with bugs post-release. Yeah. Um, oh. I mean, that's kind of common knowledge, but uh, it's fun to see it in a machine learning algorithm pop out. You, you mentioned you took a look at your, was it GitHub? You were looking at your sentiment analysis for your issues? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we tried doing that too. Um, I, I pulled some, uh, you know, several thousand um, GitHub things and tried to run sentiment analysis. And same as you, um, people were generally kind of angry-ish um, and, and it didn't really show up a lot of useful data. Uh, but there's some Cortana intelligence suite things that you can oh, use, cognitive right. services. And one of those will pull out the key phrases um, in those. And it looks at kind of a, a, all of your um, bug reports and it'll pull out the key phrases um, inside of those. And by key phrases, I don't mean sentiment phrases. I mean, things that make that bug unique compared to all of the other ones it's compared to. Um, mm. You'll see Amazon.com has that on books. They'll say, here are the you know unique words used in this book that are unique to other books. And you can kind of understand that topic. But if you do that inside of those GitHub things, you can then run a clustering algorithm over them and show related bugs. Um, GitHub doesn't give you enough data to be able to correlate that to how hard that bug fix might be, but TFS does. So one of the things we've looked at is taking that same data, but as opposed to GitHub, we look at it at TFS, and then we look at the prior bugs, and we look at what files those prior bugs have touched, and you can pr often predict eh, with some accuracy what files you might need to be opening to fix these other related bugs. You use a k-nearest neighbor algorithm for that. But you can do that with uh, just using the Cortana analytic services. You don't need to know any math at all. Wow, that's fantastic. Speaking of math, a lot of you know what we're doing is all about um, 
complex systems you know the uh, the software well all the people involved is a is a complex stroke chaotic system and that's leading to the old ken schraber thing the whole point of what we're doing in software engineering is we're deliberately getting close to the edge of chaos because if we weren't we should just be buying off-the-shelf products you know so how have you being a math geek have you found any of those methods around complex dynamic systems and chaos have any applicability to, to you know to work items to to around the ALM side not necessarily to work items individually but as an aggregate absolutely yeah. and you can do so in a complex system like you mentioned you're pushing that edge of chaos which means it's very difficult for you to have um equations you can plug things into to make things work. Instead, you often have to simulate. And so where where we've been doing a lot of work and, and trying to build a VSTS plugin for this is simulating delivery dates of releases, you know, kind of a burn down of a release, but get an end delivery date that's not a date, but a probability over a range of dates. And we use something called a Monte Carlo simulation. And huh. It's really interesting. It, here's how you do it. And I'll just really quickly talk you through that. You Every work item in TFS or VSTS, you have that lead time and that cycle time that we talked about. How long does it take something to be delivered? And so we can figure out the average length of time it takes to be delivered along with a distribution. So some things, large items might might take have a really wide distribution. If you remember your normal curves, you kind of draw those, they might be really wide and your small ones might be a little skinnier for how long they take, who knows? But you, you look at that distribution and then you run 10,000 or 100,000 simulations over whatever scope bucket you have to predict when it's going to be delivered. So uh, Monte Carlo says, you, let's say you've got 100 work items, those 100 work items you want to deliver. And you you go through and you say, given our historical amount of time it's taken to do these deliveries and assuming a distribution, you know, that, that distribution, sometimes it takes two days, sometimes it takes 10 days to deliver something, randomly make a guess for all of these 100 work items. And then how long did it take to deliver that? And that's one data point. Now, you do that 100,000 times and you get another curve which sits at your data point. I'm going to have to try to describe this um, visually, but let me let me try to paint a picture in your mind. And maybe I'll I'll do a quick blog post that you can put in the show notes to, mm. where people can see it. But imagine a burn down chart and you see a burn down and you've only done two days or three days out of a long delivery cycle or maybe a week out of a three month cycle. So you see it burning down. Oftentimes, people will take a ruler and draw a line on what they've delivered, and they'll get on that x-axis, they'll get a date. And that date will say, hey, mm -hmm. we're going to deliver something on June 3rd at you know, June 3rd. <laughs> and, well, that's all sorts of BS, and we know it's BS. Instead, you run that Monte Carlo simulation on what's left of that release burndown. There might be 99 or 98 items left and you get a bell curve that sits over those delivery dates and where that june 3rd might have sat might have been at the 50 percent mark you got a 50 percent chance of hitting that date and a 50 percent chance of not but you can take and reach out further further go out um you know one sigma you know one standard deviation out and you can say we've got an 87 percent chance of hitting this date go out two standard deviations say we've got a 93 percent chance of hitting this date or whatever the, the numbers are so you can make 
much more effective predictions if you use this type of simulation, especially with something as variable as software development. What's really interesting is as that thing burns down, as you complete more work, now you're doing the prediction over smaller and smaller sets of, of, of items. Now maybe you're only doing it over 50 items. And what happens is that uncertainty around the date starts to collapse and you get a taller, skinnier normal curve above the dates. So it gives you a really nice way to predict with, with, with much better accuracy when you're able to deliver. But most importantly, the executives look at it and they don't say June 3rd, telemarketing. Yeah. They, they understand the uncertainty and it, it completely wipes away that give me a date mentality that most executives have. When they see it, they intuitively get it, and they no longer are asking your team for an exact date. And I, I think that, frankly, is the biggest value to that. I love it. That so for for listeners that aren't you know don't have a background in uh, I did computational fluid dynamics, so we used to use Monte Carlo method quite a lot with a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, basically this is this is this isn't new. This is used a lot in physics and and systems and predicting the system so yeah no that's a, and it works the better the larger numbers you have this is kind of when you get a weather forecast and you see there is an 80 percent chance of precipitation tomorrow that's that's because they've ran lots of different simulations through and that's kind <laughs> of what they get to or and that's why also those numbers are more accurate the closer you are to the point at which you're about to finish because there's there's less deviation possible along that path so no that's genius uh, the thing i love about that as well steve is that the larger the system, then the more accurate it's going to be here. So this is normally when you're doing estimations, the larger the system, the least accurate it is. But in this case, the bigger the numbers you've got, the more accurate it is. But you're giving them a measurable, a measurable percentage of certainty, you know. Yes, it's really it's very compelling. And it's the most compelling thing I've found to show executives as to what the, to answer the when will I be done question, which is a big, big question in all software development groups, even ones that have fully adopted agile. They still have buckets of scope that need to be delivered. Yeah. What I would love to know with that as well, it was, it was the old you know rule of thumb was a, um, a, a sort of a soft est an estimate when you didn't really know all the full requirements was accurate plus or minus 40 percent. And then after you'd, you know, once you'd started the sprint, your estimates were like plus or minus 20%. I would love to know how how accurate that actually is and if that gets any better you know what i mean if if your um if your simulations if if the after a well-functioning team had been stuck together for a while if the um if the standard deviation if the bell curve if the standard deviation wasn't as great over time so well i'll give you an example from a customer we have they yeah. they used to do two-week estimates on how long it would take to build a product and they'd spend mm -hmm. all of their time doing these estimates but then um <laughs> that would give them their their traditional water fall they'd spend two weeks then they'd, they'd respond to their uh it basically it was an rf rfp yep. and they'd respond to the rfp with this is how long it's going to take um they swapped to using this methodology where they would go into a room and instead of spending two weeks with their architect project manager and senior dev they would go in and they would spend three hours two to three hours and they would look at the requirements and they go small medium large and they would literally read the title of the requirement 
go small, medium, or large. If there was no disagreement, that was it. And if there was disagreement, they'd read further into the spec. Um, and they did that in two to three hours. And they went from a plus or minus 30% variability on their estimates to a plus or minus approximately 10% variability. That means a lot more profit when you're talking fixed bids. Because if you have a 10% overage, that's radically different than a 30% overage on any estimate. So that's just one example of how powerful it is to use a Monte Carlo simulation. And, and the key for that as well is the estimates you were having before, you had a false a false perception of accuracy because you were predicting 56 hours your perception of accuracy was oh well, well this estimate's accurate to the hour you know to 50 like you know to, to a single integer hour whereas if you're estimating small medium and large then you're getting rid of that false perception of of accuracy you're already giving it the error bars to each yeah. of the individual estimates and so yeah no um so you, yeah you're just doing it quicker you're not so this is cool i love it we could talk about this for hours unfortunately we don't have it's hours faster for and more accurate <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to have to break in. Getting these two smart guys here, my brain is full. It's about to explode. Um, wow. Hope we that... can go too deep into the mathematics, Greg. Uh, no, I, I thought it was awesome. Uh, this was a great show, but it is time to start wrapping it up. Unfortunately, we haven't had an ALM Ranger piece yet, Greg, though. We can't, we yeah, can't you know wrap what? the show without ALM Rangers. No, I actually... Well, okay. There is one post that they did recently. Um, Willie P. Po- uh, posted about how the Alum Rangers are the warning canaries, you know, the canaries in the coal mine. And he talks about all the things that the Alum Rangers do uh, in that and how they dog food. And you guys, everybody knows what dog fooding is. It's listening to this show. It talks about details and pictures and just the, the scope of the things that they're doing. We'll have the links in the show notes here. But uh, Wow. That was Stephen. We are going to have to have you on like next year. <laughs> we can't wait another four years or three years. That's just that that just will not do. Uh, well, thank you very much, Greg. It was it was a pleasure. Hope I didn't go too far on some of these more esoteric things, but it's amazing what you can do with VSTS and the TFS data. It is. It is phenomenal, especially when you throw in some machine learning and some good reporting techniques. So where should people come to learn more, Steve? Where should, apart from coming to see you at your next, uh, you know, your next conference, uh, how, how should they learn more? Um, they can always hit blog.nwcadence.com. That's a, a November Whiskey Cadence, C-A-D-E-N-C-E.com. Or if they're interested, email me. I'm at steven.borg, S-T-E-V-E-N dot B-O-R-G at nwcadence. And I am really happy to share a lot of this stuff I'm doing. I, I unfortunately don't blog as much as I should, but uh, I'll get out there and at least do a blog that's related to this uh, this post and the things we've talked about. So you can kind of see some interesting things there and see some of the graphics that I've tried to explain uh, with words. Great. And speaking of email, uh, we did get an email just today from David Shaw, wanted to actually help. If we could help reach out to the team, there's a broken link in the TFS 2015.3 admin console. So I'll, I'll send that out on the Alum Champs list, Dave, and, and we'll get that sent. If you guys want to send us an email, it's radiotfsoutlook.com or radiotfs at gmail.com. They'll both reach us. Twitter, at radiotfs. We're on Facebook, slash radiotfs, or do voicemail. Remember, safe for work. We'll play your voicemail on the air. So this is your chance for fame and stardom. 1-425-233-8379. And Stephen, again, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Radio TFS. 